Today's scripture passage comes from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young, young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. This is Palm Sunday, and so the hymns and the prayers and the, and the readings are all about Jesus the King. Jesus as King, and and Palm Sunday is about the fact that the king is actually coming back. The king is entering and he's returning. He's making his way back. And uh, this passage then is about that triumphal entry of Jesus. And what John's trying to show us, the author, he's trying to show us, is not just the fact that Jesus is king, but he's trying to show us what does his kingliness consist of? What, is, what does his kingliness mean? What makes Jesus king? What does it mean when we say Jesus is king? And what John is showing us is that his greatness, Jesus' greatness, Jesus' royalty, uh, Jesus' kingliness, true kingliness, it it lies in Jesus' ability to embody the perfections that otherwise could never be brought together in any person, in the same person, in the same heart, in the same head, On one hand, you have strong indications of the magnificence, the majestic quality of Jesus as king. Verse 19, actually you see verses 17, 18, and 19. You know, the crowd is bearing witness. They see him as king. And even the Pharisees, they start to say, that, look, the whole world has gone after him. That's verse 19. But on the other hand, you have this clear teaching about the lowliness and the meekness and the weakness and the gentleness of Jesus as the king. Verse 15, behold your king. He's meek and lowly. He's on a donkey's colt. And this, these two aspects of a person, the lowliness and the weakness of a person, and the majestic greatness and the, and the uh, magnificence of a person, they're brought together into one person. Jesus embodies both perfectly. We never see this anywhere else. These two things are brought together. They're united in Christ. And I want to submit to you that we need this. We need a king that is like this. You may say, well, how do I do that? And now I'm going to unpack that statement a little bit, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to submit to you that we need only a true king that has those two qualities united under him. That's the only thing that could really be the source or the cure of all the pathologies, the deep pathologies in the human soul. It's the only thing that can cure what's wrong with the human heart. We're always looking for a king. We're always looking for it. You don't know? You, you want to know how? True love. We're always looking for the perfect spouse. When you're married to somebody, you're dissatisfied with your spouse on any given moment. You know why? It's because you're looking for a king. 
You expect a king. You want a king. You need a king. Deep friendships, the perfect friend, the leaders that we admire and adore. That's why we're so broken when we see their weaknesses and their flaws. We're trying to find kingliness. We're trying to find something in those things, in those people that you're never going to be able to find because people will inevitably let you down. Everyone's going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you. There are three questions as a result that come this way on Palm Sunday, the day of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as the king. What is it? What is true kingliness? How does Jesus demonstrate true kingliness? And how can that kingliness, if Jesus enters into our lives, that means that that kingliness is entered into our lives. How do we get that kingliness ourselves? How do we demonstrate those qualities of true kingliness? What is it? What is true kingliness? How does Jesus embody true kingliness? And how do we become then true kings? Or how do we demonstrate true kingliness in our lives? First, what is it? In the most enduring of all tales of the Western world, true kings... True kings have this very strange combination of fierceness and meekness, of greatness and lowliness. The ideal king is not partly fierce and partly weak or partly meek, but he's all fierce. He's both all fierce and all weak at the same time. How is that possible? He's ultimately fierce and bold like a lion, but he's ultimately meek and low like a lamb. The true king, he's invincible in battle, invincible in battle, and yet so tender-hearted, so meek, so gentle, so kind, so modest, so gracious. We all need that. We all need that in our lives. We're so attracted. We're so desperately wanting to be in the presence. We want that type of king as our friend. We want that type of king in our spouse. We want our children to grow up like that type of king. That's what we want. Think about what you look for in a spouse. Everybody wants somebody who's confident and capable, no doubt about it. But if you're married to somebody who's only confident and only capable all the time, that's going to make him arrogant. And that arrogance is going to corrode your soul. You're going to become disenchanted with that person's arrogance. It's going to get you into trouble. It's going to corrode both of you. And as a reason, you know why? It's because he lacks compassion. He lacks humility. But if you marry somebody on the opposite end, Somebody who's all humble, all compassionate, all sensitive, all the time. He's constantly weepy. He's a coward. It's going to corrode your soul. It's going to corrode your soul. And you're going to become disenchanted with that. Why? Because there's no boldness in that person's life. The ideal of the true king puts an impossible demand in our lives. We project that onto other people. We expect our leaders, our spouses, our children to grow up and be that way. You know, women they, women, they always say, you know, I want somebody who's uh, firm, really firm, but tender. I want somebody who um, is incredibly capable and confident, you know, yet humble. I want somebody who's incredibly attractive. I want somebody who's attractive, good-looking, and yet not really into himself. I want, you know, uh, as if the clothes just magically appeared onto his body, you know. Um, I want somebody who can be absolutely spontaneous, incredibly spontaneous, but so self-controlled. He knows he's level-headed. You know, men, what do men always say? Men, I want somebody who's absolutely stunning and beautiful, but not vain. You know, um, everybody is looking for somebody 
to embody the complete quality of elegance and royalty, at the same time, modesty and humility. We all want that. We need that in our lives. Another way of saying that, why do all of us, it's a universal thing, there's not a single person here in this room who's attracted to an arrogant person. Why is it that? We just despise arrogant people. We just despise uh, people who are immodest. You know why? The Bible, the Bible says, I'm like 15 again. The Bible says it rubs against the fabric, the DNA of the very character we were made to embody. We're made to embody the image of Christ, our King. And so we're so dissatisfied, disenchanted, disillusioned by arrogance. We don't like that. We don't like immodesty. And yet we so much admire royalty and elegance. We were made to be that way. So naturally, we hate pride. We hate arrogance. There's this constant desire for true kingliness. Human beings, we're built for this. We desire this. That's why we desire this. But the problem is, not a single person who embodies both of those qualities at the same time in all ways exists. You're not going to find somebody who's all brave and yet meek, who's all bold and yet sweet together in one person. You're not going to find that. We want to project ourselves to be that way. We want to project ourselves to be meek, even though in our hearts we're so arrogant, we're so proud. That's how we are. Where does this ideal come from? Where does this ideal come from? The ideal of this true king. In Revelation chapter 5, in your call to worship, you see this. John is looking for this king. The one who's seated on the throne, who's worthy enough, who's kingly enough, who's confident enough to be able to tear the seals and execute the demands of the king. And yet at the same time, what does he see? He's looking for a lion. And yet he finds a lamb. He sees not a lion that comes and rips through, rips the scroll to shreds. He sees a lamb, meek and lowly, one that was sacrificed, who's able, who's worthy to tear the seals and execute the king who's able to sit on the throne. It's the lamb that's seated on the throne. That's what we always sing and we read. What does that really mean, the lamb? He's talking about Christ. Christ is the lion and the lamb, seated on the throne, worthy to sit on the throne. You see, this is embodied in the same person. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. Who is this? The idea of true kingliness. It didn't just come out of pagan religions. It didn't just come out of other religions. Achilles was not like that. You ever watch the movie Troy? Achilles was not like that. That that ideal did not come from the Greeks. You don't see Achilles brave and yet sweet at the same time. You don't see that. That didn't come out of the Norse gods. Thor was not brave and weak at the same time. You don't see that in the Roman gods, Jupiter, Zeus. He was not uh, confident, powerful, but meek at the same time. It didn't come from the east. Vishnu, the great all-powerful god, He was not weak at the same time. You don't see that. This is entirely a Christian ideal, that the bravest and the strongest is also the meekest and the weakest and the most immodest and sweetest. Do you know why this ideal came up? Christians know that it's not an ideal. Everybody else sees it as a pie in the sky, but Christians know that it is reality. They've encountered Christ. There really is a king like that. In John chapter 12, the king enters into Jerusalem. And there we see, that's where we get the idea. Jesus is the fullest embodiment of all that the world desires in a king, strong and and a weak. 
confident and meek. Strong and brave, yet humble and meek. We want to give ourselves to that kind of king. We, want to, we are craving this kind of a king. In the movie, The American President, written by Aaron Sorkin, uh, came out in the 90s. Louis Rothschild, um, the political advisor to the president, he, he's calling the president out in his leadership. He says, in the absence of genuine leadership, they'll listen to anyone who steps up to the microphone. They want leadership. They're so thirsty for it, they'll crawl through the desert toward a mirage. And when they discover there's no water, they'll drink the sand. We're craving, we need, we desire, we absolutely want this type of king. And the only one who really embodied this type of kingship was Jesus. Verses 12 to 15. I'm going to read. Since it's short, I'm going to read. Will you read with me? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. On one hand, you see this lowness of Jesus. You see him seated on a donkey's colt, entering into, that's hardly the way a king would enter in. Kings used to ride in on a white majestic horse, the victor, right? But here you have the king, the greatness, the magnificence of the king. And yet he rides into Jerusalem, the holy city, on a colt of a donkey, the lowness of a king. He's fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, 9, about how the king would enter in on a donkey's colt, and yet it's not just to fulfill prophecy. The Old Testament scholars, I'm talking about the ancient scholars in the Bible who are studying, the Pharisees are studying, they're trying to make sense of this passage in Zechariah, this prophecy, they're trying to understand, that they couldn't understand. How could a king be low? They couldn't understand that. And yet Jesus says, you know, if I came, if I just came to overthrow the government, yes, then I would come on a high horse. I would come with a blazing sword. But I've come to deliver my people for something far more enslaving. I've come to deliver my people from death itself. I've come to make my people eternal. My kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and thus my people have to be an eternal people, and I've come to make my people. They have to overcome death. This is why I have to come in weakness. I'm so strong, and if my strength and my wisdom speak for itself, then I have to become weak, so weak that I have to die in your place. I have to pay your price. I have to come to take your place, your punishment. I have to deal with the sin of which death is the price. Death is the wage. There's, you know, what this is saying is that Jesus, there's no place that he would not go for you. There's no price that he would not pay for his people. That is the king, ultimately high and yet so low, so meek that he would willing to die for his people. That's why, don't you see it? That's why his triumph, his victory is his weakness. He's the lion and the lamb. He's so strong, he can be weak. That's why he says, I'm going to liberate you, but I'm going to liberate you from sin. I'm going to liberate you from evil. I'm going to liberate you from death. Verse 16, the disciples, they couldn't understand this. They didn't understand this until after Jesus rose again from the dead. They couldn't see the highness and the lowness of the king. When the king died, they thought their lives were over. It wasn't until he came back from the dead they realized he had truly triumphed over the grave. He truly, and he ushered his people to overcome death throughout history. This is how God worked. 
Verses 17, 18, 19. Everybody's following the king. Everybody wants the king. Everybody wants to be near the king. We are no different. We want the king. We want that kind of kingliness in our lives. But throughout history, this is how God worked. Remember David? The story of David and Goliath? David, he was lowly. He was young. He was weak. His brothers practically laughed at him. They were dressed in in armor. He came lowly. He came weak. They were able to hold a sword. He couldn't even hold a sword. He brought stones, pebbles, smoothened stones, and a sling. That was David. Stones instead of a sword, but in his weakness, he crushed the champion of the Philistines, Goliath. And what did he do? When he finally brought Goliath down, he walked up to Goliath, who he charged up. I don't know really what he did. He walked up to Goliath, and he took Goliath's own sword. He barely lifted it up in his weakness, and he cut off Goliath's head. That's the highness of the king, and yet the lowness of the king. The Latin phrase for that is lex talionis, which means the law of retaliation. It's the ability in your weakness to take your champion's greatest strength and turn it against him to defeat him. David takes Goliath's own sword, the thing that was going to be turned against him, and in turn, he uses it as a law of retribution, law of retaliation, lex talonis. He chops off Goliath's head. Jesus, in the earlier part of chapter 12, at a party, says, the hour has come for my glory. And so the disciples, seeing him enter into Jerusalem, they say, truly, this must be the hour. But the hour that he was speaking of was his death. Why? It was Jesus' greatest weakness on the cross. On the cross. The ultimate demonstration of lex talionis. He takes the enemy's greatest strength, the enemy's greatest sword, death. Death rules us all. As the writer says, Death rules us all, and yet he takes death's greatest weapon, which is death, to kill death, to end death. Jesus' greatest strength was his weakness. Jesus' greatest weakness was his greatest strength, the cross. He used death's greatest strength to defeat death. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. He's great because he's weak. And we need that kind of king. Now, that's the first point. The second point, much quicker. How is Jesus the embodiment of this true king? Palm Sunday. It's not just to show that the king became weak, but we have to see his highness as well. How do we see this? In this passage, they are standing there with palm fronds, right? Verses 12 to 19. Verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. These people are standing there with palm fronds. Why? Because typically this is how you welcomed a conquering king. And here's Jesus entering in on a donkey's colt. And they're waving palm fronds. At his, and, and that's what it meant to them. The king has come. And yet to Jesus, it meant something else, something so much deeper because he knew that this was practically just a foreshadowing of when the king would return, the return of the king. One day the king will return. Psalm chapter 96, Isaiah chapter 55. I'm just going to read portions. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. This was written centuries before the birth of Christ. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. 
everything in it, you know, the chipmunks, the gophers, the animals, the sheep, the cows, the goats, right? Uh, Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Jesus knows right now these palm trees, they're worshiping mechanically. They're being held by something else and mechanically worshiping the king. One day he knows when he returns, the mountains, the fields, the trees themselves, the palm trees, the palm fronds will wave again, except this time they will not be unattached. It's the trees that are bowing before God. Jesus knows that this is just a foreshadowing. You know what that means? That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And God says, Jesus says, you know, in Revelation, I am making all things new, he says. I'm making all things new. I am making all things new. Jesus knows that one day, these palm trees will wave, but they're going to be waving, still attached to the trees themselves, not mechanically, but organically. One day, you will become your real self before the true king. You're going to be what you were intended to be. Right now, we're trying to figure out what we were meant to be. So we struggle in our jobs. We struggle in our families. We come to these crises in life. You know, what is the purpose of my life? One day the king is going to return and you will become the fullest expression of what you were intended to be. You will dance. Right now, this world is under bad management. Bad management. When you have bad management, if you've ever seen... a the poor management of an apartment complex. There's decay. Things are breaking. Things are falling apart. There's breakdown everywhere. The reason why your life, our world, is the way that it is is because it's under wicked management. Poor management. Bad management. But one day when the king comes, wherever his feet pass, everything around him is going to spring to completion. You ever watch the animated film, Disney animated film, Beauty and the Beast. One day when the king comes, everything that was in its intended glory will spring to completion, literally spring to completion. Everything's going to come in its own glory and its own power. Palm branches will be waving, still attached to trees. Everything's going to blossom. Everything's going to bloom. This is the kingliness of Jesus. This is the majestic royalty of Jesus. He's low. He's meek. He's weak, even to the point of death. And yet, he's high, and he's great, and he's mighty. If you're settling for the way you are right now, you know, if you've just kind of said, you know what, this is just who I am. I can't change. I've given up on myself a long time ago. If that's what you're doing right now, if you're just settling for the way you are, and you're losing hope. That means you're losing hope. You're losing hope in the coming king. One day, you, you are not, you are not what you will ultimately become. One day, you know why our bodies decay? It's the last remnant of the sinfulness that's broken the world. And so our bodies need to decay. But when the king returns, we will spring forth into new bodies. Everything will be glorified. An amazing, amazing truth. Remember the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king? The, the third part the, of the trilogy? Trilogy. I don't know if uh, this was in the movie. The movie was so long ago and so long. I can't remember all the parts of the movie, but, but in the book, um, the hands of the king are the hands of the healer. 
And so shall the rightful king be known. Remember that passage, that verse? The hands of the king are healing hands. You see this image of people outside the city walls and the king comes by in his lowness and he's touching people. And as he touches them, they're being healed and they spring up into renewed cells. The hands of the king are healing hands. Romans chapter 8 says, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Right now, creation, imagine all of creation, is held in bondage to decay. We're meant to decay right now. Um, in the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, right? Um, the children walk through the wardrobe and they enter into this new world and Mr. Tumnus explains to them how they've been in an internal winter. Everything is frozen because of the, the queen, the witch, the witch has frozen everything. But he says, you know, something's peculiar because right now as he looks up and he stares at the tree and it starts to drip, you see water starting to drip. And he says, because things are starting to fall, spring is coming. With the coming of Aslan, the king, the hands of the king are healing hands. Everything, the world is held in its bondage to decay but it's brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's Romans chapter 8. The king is coming, and one day he will liberate us from this bondage. That means that our looks, our bodies, they're fading. Even the best looking among our people are going to decay one day. They're going to fade away. Our bodies are decaying. Everything is going away. Everything is fading away, and we want the infinite we want the forever romans chapter 8 it says the creation is groaning like in pains of childbirth i'm never going to give birth to a child but in pains of child you know what those pains are because for month after month you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting until that ultimate final pain before the glory that's what creation is doing right now it's pregnant waiting for the king to return Jesus is the one. When he comes forth, the earth is going to quake. The sea is going to roar. His voice is going to come like thunder. But yet at the same time, he's so tender, so tender to his people. The Bible says a bruised reed he will not break. That means that he sees walking by. He sees a bruised reed. He will not break it. He's not going to just walk by because he's a king. He will stand aside. That's what it means. Even a bruised reed he will not break. What would he do for people who are hurting like you and me? What would he do? People who are so broken, what would he do? He's going to heal the hurting. He's going to protect the poor. He's so tender. He's going to bless the broken. He's going to restore our lives if you receive him as who he is. You've got to receive him as the king, the magnificent king. Lastly, how do we receive this kingliness into our lives? If Jesus is the fullest embodiment of this king, we need it. That's point one, right? We need this. We need to know what kingliness is, and we need it. The second part is Jesus is the fullest embodiment of that kingliness. Then how do we get that? If Jesus enters into our lives, how do we get that kingliness in us? We absolutely need it, his lowness and his highness. But it's absolutely possible. That's what this passage is saying. It's absolutely possible. There's no hope for society if that kingliness cannot enter in our lives. If Jesus isn't a king, that means that his laws mean nothing. 
Why obey any of his laws at all? If Jesus isn't the true king, why believe? Why have morals at all? That means that Frederick Nietzsche was right, that everybody is absolutely right and just to carry his own laws. And that means your version of right is right and my version of right is right and they could be wholly different and opposite, but we're both right. In fact, the rapist has no injustice. No injustice can be, no justice can be brought to him. Why? Because everybody's got their version of right. There is no hope for society if there is no king that will come. If there is no ultimate king that will come in return to restore order in his kingdom. Do you believe that? Do you know that? There's no hope for our lives either. Think about it. Unless a king, unless the kingliness of Christ enters into your life, you're always either A, going to be fighting other people or cowering before other people. That's going to be the sum of our lives. We, some of us are living that way right now. Think about it. You want power, then you're going to work and you're going to fight and you're going to claw for that power. Every yard, every inch, you're going to go for it. You know why? Because you don't have real power. You don't have true kingliness in you. You want love, you're going to give love, you're going to take love. You're going to cower in order, you're going to cower before people and serve and help and want people and you're going to burn out you're going to burn out serving or burn out loving or burn out giving yourself, either your, your emotional self or your body or anything like that. And you're going to be broken. It's still going to be empty. It's, so, it's going to be so disillusioning. Why? Because you don't have real love. You don't have real kingliness and you don't have real love. You don't have real power. Only Jesus can unite that boldness and a humility in you. Otherwise, you're going to fall into one or the other every time. Just as he rode into Jerusalem, he needs to ride right into you. He needs to enter into you whether it's the first time or the nth time, we need that king to enter again. We need that right now. On one hand, if Jesus, the Lord, the king, if he becomes king of your soul, he's going to create in you a servant heart. The, if the, as the highness of Jesus enters in, so will his lowness. And that's going to make you into a, more of a servant. How? The king came meek and lowly. That means we become a servant. He's going to make us into a servant. That's what's going to happen. Take a certain kind of person. You know, um, he's serving not necessarily because he's got kingliness in him, but because he wants to gain a sense of worth. If he serves, that's the way he gets recognized. If he serves and if he gives and if he helps, he's going to work and he's going to work and he's going to work and he's going to burn out. He's serving because he's trying to gain a sense of worth. He's trying to feel worthy. He's trying to feel helpful. He's trying to, he's not serving anybody in essence. He's actually, the only person he's serving is himself. He's using his service to feel a sense of worth in himself. And that's going to leave him empty and complaining and grumbling because no one's there to help him. Only he's doing it all the time. You see that? You're serving yourself. Truly kingly people, true kingly people, they're always meek. They're looking for ways to forgive when they're hurt. They're looking for ways to give. They're looking for ways to build people up in a genuine way, not by lying to them, but but in a genuine way, building people up. They're looking for ways to encourage people in a genuine way. They're not looking to use people. They're not looking to gain from people because they have power. They have love. They have this king in them. And if you have that king in you, then you're going to be meek. You're going to be meek. Now, think about this. Some of us are incredibly condescending, incredibly, um, you know, we're always manipulating situations and manipulating other people. We're constantly trying to use and trying to figure out what we can get out of people. Or, or we're condescending because we, it's our way of kind of asserting our highness above them. 
as if we're the knowing ones and so we can talk down to people or we can kind of condescend on people because they're not living well, they're not living right, but I'm living right. And it makes us feel good about ourselves because by stepping over other people in some ways, right? When we do that, that's not meek. That's not kingly at all. You know, but think about it another way. Why are some of you in Philadelphia? This big city, this great city. A lot of us are here in Philadelphia. Most of the world is in Philadelphia because they need to come into the big city to use it. They need it for power. They need it for status. They need it for titles to bolster their careers. They need it because, uh, you know, uh, on one hand, what's going to happen is um, you're using the city to gain money, to gain status, to gain power, maybe to gain relationships. Or you're going to cower away, you're going to cower being exposed by the city so it's going to influence you and shape you with all of its morals, all of its values, all of its lifestyles. So either A, you've completely given into the city, or B, you're using the city to gain something for yourself. Why are you in Philadelphia? Why are you in the schools that you're in? Why are you in the professions that you're in? A Christian is somebody who does, who's here to serve the city, to transform the city. You're not here to use it because you already have a sense of worth. So you're fully confident. And so because of your full confidence, this type of kingly confidence doesn't make us use and suppress and oppress other people. Actually, it makes us transform and want to get in just as Jesus entered in and serve. It doesn't want to make us subvert other people, but through means of conversion, friendship, relationship, lowness, weakness, meekness, we serve. We don't use the city. We don't get too influenced by the city. Why? Because your confidence is already in you. That kingliness is already in you. Those are the only people who can transform a city. If you try to go in, and I'm going to change the city, and you're just on a cause, you're on a mission, people are turned off by you. But if you're going in with a genuine heart to serve, because you have that kingliness, Christ the King has served you in his faithfulness, you will transform others. You will transform people. How does this happen? How do you get this kind of courage? How do you get this, this heart of a lamb and yet the heart of a lion to get this courage and the boldness to do this, this roar, this confidence? How do you do that? Jesus says, forget your successes, forget your trophies, forget your credentials, forget your beauty. I wrote all this down. Forget your accomplishments. If you want to act in a world like a king, if you want to be a king in the world, you need to know that you are remembered, that you are known in heaven. How are we known in heaven? On the cross, Jesus, on the cross, he's crucified between two criminals. If you know anything about the narrative, he's crucified between two criminals because they're treating him as a criminal. And here he is in between two criminals. And remember, there's a sign above him and it says, here is the king of the Jews. Remember that? And here's Jesus crucified. Everyone's mocking him. Everyone's hurling insults at him. They're, they're spitting at him. And he's in tremendous pain and he's writhing and he's groaning. But one person, one criminal says to him, save yourself and us. If you're really who you say you are, you should save yourself. In other words, you should oppress, you should subvert. But it's that other criminal, what does he say? There was something he saw in Jesus on the cross. He says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He sees Jesus as the king. What did he see about Jesus on the cross? 
he saw this amazing man who had done nothing wrong. That's what he says. He says, this man, we're suffering for what we deserve, but this man, he did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. He sees the highness, an unattainable highness, the perfection of the king, and yet crucified on the cross and not complaining, reciting scripture, still calling God his God. And he says, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He sees the lowness of Jesus. He sees the meekness of Jesus. He sees the fullness, the fullest embodiment of kingly character in Christ. That's what he sees. On the cross, Jesus sunk to the depths. You know how deep he sunk? He became sin. That was how, that was how he became great. And by becoming sin, that's how we become great. Because he took our sins away to restore us to let that kingliness enter into us. That's why he's great. How he became great, why why he's great. You need to know that. You have the favor of the king. We have no sin. The sin has been washed away. We just sang about that. that. Jesus pleads for us. That's the lowness of the king. He cleanses us. That's the lowness of the king. The highness of the king came down to the depths and sacrificed his life. The lion became the lamb of sacrifice. Why? So that we, the ones who should have been the lambs, and in our brokenness we are the lambs, can become the lions in heaven. Peter writes, in Christ you are a royal priesthood. That means we're all kings. We can have that kingliness in us. How do you grow that lion's heart? Take any small situation in your life and you have to remind yourself, any, any type of circumstance of suffering in your life, and at that moment, remind yourself that this is not because I, God does not favor me. I have the favor of the king. If you're suffering at work, you know, college students, you're entering into, entering into finals within the next month. If you're suffering in your work, You have the favor of the king. You are connecting with the suffering of Christ, the ultimate king. You have the favor of the king. That's how you grow a lion's heart and at the same time a servant heart. You know, you're not serving your boss, you're serving the Lord. You have the highness of the king. You know, if your your relationships are failing and you crave this love, you have the favor of the king. You are loved by God. That should give you a desire, a heart. It can give you a heart to serve, to serve. If you're suffering from guilt, you have the favor of the king. The absolute favor of the king. That means you are absolved and you can enter into his palace. It's going to make you a servant, but it's also going to make you incredibly confident, incredibly confident. Can you walk into the palace with that kind of boldness every day in your life, despite where you've been, what you've done, who you were? People may have failed you. You can have the incredible kingliness of Christ and yet the lowness of Christ. You can forgive. Take any situation in your life. You have the favor of the king. And it came at a price. The highness of the Christ was crucified on the cross. Spit on, rejected, lowly. Why? So that we who are broken and low can become high and have the favor of the king. Will you trust in that? As we enter into this week, you have to trust in that. That's what this week is about. Jesus coming down to the depths. It's his passion week. On this week, he had one week to live. And all the things that he says, all the things that he prayed, it was for you. It was for you. 
Some of you say, no, that's too hard. I can't be a servant. I'm too messed up. I can't serve right now. I have to make myself right. You're not letting Jesus in as your king. You know why? You, you're a lamb, and you can't be a lion. You know, the hands of the king are healing hands. Let him heal you. But some of you, you're saying, this is too easy. That means that I can do whatever I want now because his kingliness is in me. I'm forgiven. I'm absolved. I can live any way I want. Jesus gave me complete freedom. You are a lion, but you are not a lamb. You must serve. That's how Christ's servanthood was marked. His life was marked by his servanthood. Do you see that? Jesus has not entered into your life then as king. Let his kingliness, let the lion and the lamb enter in and see that he became low for you and let that change you. I read this from a great preacher. On, on the first Palm Sunday, Jesus came meek and lowly, riding on a donkey's coal. The next time he comes back, he'll be riding on a cloud. The first time, he came to be torn. The next time, he will come to tear apart all evil. Wherever he passes, wherever he walks, creation will spring and bloom. The hands of the king are healing hands. Let him enter into your life. Let him transform your life. Let him enter into your life today, this week. Here